Oh, there should be a light here. A light. Technicians, female only. Please come and remedy this situation. Never mind, this female just did it. And uh, you have absconded with the text of my... Just as Linda Nochlin did a few years ago. You were warned, you were warned. Welcome. The alliterative title of my speech is 20 Years of Testimony, Losing Some Bothersome Battles, But Winning the War. <laughs> and thank you. As we wait for the lights to go down, I will show you that I do have hair and a neck, but there's a downdraft here, and I'm not going to catch cold. Well, here they are. Yay! Anne Sutherland Harris on your left, and Lyndon Auchlin on your right, co-curators of the groundbreaking blockbuster show that startled and educated America, women artists, 1550 to 1950, with venues in Los Angeles, Austin, Austin, Texas, as Ann Harris always says, presuming that we wouldn't know Austin with it, <clears throat> Pittsburgh, which is in Pennsylvania, Ann, where you live, and Brooklyn. Admired, befriended, and even painted by contemporary women artists like Alice Neal, these two art historians, already noted for their studies of past artists, male, had now righted the balance and given women artists of the past their well-deserved public visibility. All this incidentally happened not in 1974, as our panel description precipitously states, but in December of 1976. But no matter, we're still happy to recall and celebrate the momentous event. How well I remember Linda's pioneer trek down to Texas in the mid-1970s to photograph with that transplanted New Englander Eleanor Tufts as her local guide, works by women artists in our local museums, such as this masterful portrait of a singer by Vijay Lebrun. But long before that, Linda had forever disrupted the then exclusively male mode of seeing with her unforgettable panel at the 1972 San Francisco CAA convention entitled Woman as Sex Object. In oh so correct, restrained, and scholarly language, Linda demurely pointed out how Gauguin's transmutation of the breast as flower metaphor into acceptable high art read pornography, was in fact derived from current low art mass audience postcard offerings of breast as apple motifs, such as this 19th century photograph fetchingly entitled, Buy Some Apples. Before the audience could recover from this titillating truism, Linda then asked mildly how such metaphors might be read if the traditional erotic symbols changed sex buy some bananas. <laughs> Nothing can ever top this. <laughs> My own strangely stimulating contribution to this panel cycled around the strange fantasies of female masturbation as envisioned by male artists and uh, spokesmen. <clears throat> 
Anne Harris, too, was already well into the feminist fray, serving in 1972 as the first president of the just-founded Women's Caucus for Art and shooting off round after round of visual ammunition to support her sizzling testimony before a congressional subcommittee concerning the statistical imbalance between men and women in academia. How well I remember while searching out Italian women painters of the Renaissance with Eleanor Tufts in the summer of 1974, bumping into Anne time and again as we simultaneously arrived at obscure chapels in Bologna in pursuit of Lavinia Fontana. Who would have imagined then that one of the outcomes of all this research for the exhibition and catalog, our Bible still today, Women Artists 1550 to 1950, would be that Anne Harris would serve last fall as the first Eleanor Tufts Distinguished Visiting Professor of Art History at my own university, SMU in Dallas. One of the requirements being apparently that you can play a musical instrument. Anne plays a very decent piano. I've mentioned Eleanor Tufts several times now, and rightly so, because once there were four jolly feminist art historians agitating, along with so many others, at those staid CAA conventions in the mid-1970s, when wearing slacks, to say nothing of broad-brimmed bright hats, was a no-no. Eleanor lost her battle against ovarian cancer two years ago. But her contributions to the revisionist war of art history are ever-present in her books, writings, and kindly personal influence. Like Anne and Linda, Eleanor was of a generation that first researched male artists. She had a scholarly love affair with the great Spanish 18th-century still-life painter Luis Melendez, whose oeuvre catalogue she saw to press in 1985. But also, like Anne and Linda, she was an enthusiastic admirer of living women artists, such as that compelling painter of modern still life, Janet Fish, seen here with Eleanor in her New York studio. From her graduate student days onward, Eleanor was committed to documenting the work of every woman artist she came across, from Clara Peters in the Prado to Paula Modison Becker in Detroit. I know all this and have all these slides handy because for 20 years I was privileged to share not only Eleanor's professional life but also her domestic life in Dallas after we both moved there from our respective teaching jobs on the East Coast. And those of you who have visited us there over the years know why a library edition had to be built. We do indeed have a 20th anniversary date to remember here today. And that is the first publication since before World War I of a serious and scholarly book on women artists, Eleanor Tufts, Our Hidden Heritage, published in 1974. And dealing with five centuries of artists from Sofonisba Anguissola to Iris Pereira. Eleanor's book came out just in time to combat this smugly myopic publication of 1973 restrictively titled The Artist in His Studio <laughs> and to make us think twice about such touching acknowledgments as this one from a 1974 book entitled The Studio and the Artist quote one of the greatest assets an artist can have is a wife who believes in him and his work the artist's earnings are often meager and sporadic 
wives who are dedicated to their husbands' careers make a vital contribution by taking jobs. A wife who is willing to endure hardships and disappointments on the long road to fame that eludes most artists derives her pleasure and fulfillment from nurturing the creative spirit of her husband. End quote. <laughs> Sharing the spotlight with European women artists of the past for Eleanor were American women artists past and present, and during the 1980s, she worked with great delight on her thousands of handwritten index cards, the computer was unknown to this old-fashioned New Englander, producing two extremely useful bibliographical guides in 1984 and 89 on American women artists. Eleanor's infectious enthusiasm for promoting women artists, Audrey Flack has said of her, she really cared about us. She had no hidden agenda, communicated it its, itself to all. Before I met Eleanor, I was busy researching the self-portraits of the male Austrian expressionist artist Egon Schiele. After I met Eleanor, I became an advocate of women expressionist artists like the German-born Käthe Kollwitz, whose kissable self-portrait bust can incite improper museum etiquette in her more unrestrained admirers. <laughs> Thanks to Eleanor's contagious example, I fired in 1977 my own first feminist shot, contrasting in an article for Arts Magazine, Edvard Munch's self-centered private grief with Kolbitz's all-embracing universal grief. And last year saw the translation into German by, of the essays by three American scholars, including me, for the great 1992 Kolbitz retrospective at Washington's National Gallery. Eleanor also inspired her Byzantinist colleague, Anna-Marie Carr, to research the topic of medieval women artists, the results of which were published by gold-jacketed Cindy Nemser, who looks just the same today, because I've seen her, in her feisty The Feminist Art Journal of 1976. How grateful we art historians and artists alike are for those early ambitious magazines like Nemser's Feminist Art Journal, Cynthia Navaretta's Women Artists News, and here's Cynthia over here, and Elsa Honig Fine's Women's Art Journal, in the pages of which women artists past and present received critical attention. Soon, not just periodicals, but whole books began to appear in the war of words directed against male-populated histories of art. Elsa Fine's Women in Art of 1978 and Charlotte Rubinstein's American Women Artists in 1982, to name just two. Charlotte was honored just here in New York this week for her midlife achievement career by the WCA. Then, whole art movements were subjected to revisionist redress. Whitney Chadwick wrote on women artists in the Surrealist Movement in 1985, and Shula Myth Bear published on women expressionists in 1988. Where the Americans led, the Europeans followed suit. The German publisher Rowald issued a two-volume lexicon of art in 1985, featuring, as you can see, Dürer's self-portrait on one cover and Modus und Becker's self-portrait on the other. That's equal representation. 
But before we let our guard down, observe this perplexing cover for male author Flavio Caroli's 1987 monograph on Sofonisba Anguissola and her sisters. Her sisters? Sofonisba? How do the image of a little boy and his sleeping dog directly correspond with the book's title? Surely an Anguissola self-portrait could have been utilized. There are many very fine ones. When we visit the publisher's booths at our CAA meetings, let's be appreciative of alert presses like Abbeville, where Nancy Grubb on the right is always ready to give a sympathetic hearing to proposals for new books on women artists. And here you see the cover for the 1988 book by Janet Kaplan on Remedios Varro. And let's be grateful for the stubborn vision and delightful editing of people like Judy Siegel, who in her voluminous Mutiny and the Mainstream, Talk the Changed Art of 1992, single-handedly documented an entire epoch of revisionist art history from 1975 to 1990. The CAA and the WCA will have to refer to this mighty broadside against a patriarchal armada for decades to come. Is she here today? Are you here? At the booth. Woman in the booth. All right. If I have any single criticism to make of this excellent contribution, it is only that not enough documentary attention was paid to the scholarly outing of gay and lesbian artists that also occurred during these years. I personally proposed, somehow got passed, and chaired the first CAA panel ever to address the subject of homosexuality in art back in the early 1970s. It was remarkable how small the audience was before the lights went out and how vast the crowd became during the darkened session. <laughs> For which one of the panelists, speaking on Romaine Brooks's portraiture, daringly dressed just like Brooks's portrait of Una Trowbridge. After all, if we are going to treat Michelangelo's and Caravaggio's sexuality as having an impact on their art, may we not also ponder whether Bonheur's preference for her own sex affected her thematic choices. But let us return for the reason for today's panel, the Red Banner Exhibition, Women Artists, 1550 to 1950, that opened at the LA County Museum 18 years ago. When the CAA and WCA held their annual conferences in Los Angeles that year, the artist June Wayne gave an unforgettable reception in her large studio in honor of Linda and Anne. How many of you were there? Yes! <laughs> when the show reached its final venue later that year, Anne Harris had co-curated a little Harris, Neil, whom she also brought to the next annual conference. Careers and motherhood can go hand in hand. Los Angeles in 1977 provided revisionist art history with a second legacy. A new battlefield had been claimed, the woman's building, which we could all find by following the pairs of cast-off women's shoes leading round the block to the entrance. Inside, living exhibits of tattooed female nudes mingled with plaster ones, or were they real too? Arlene Raven was on hand, dressed in a hundred black balloons. Was she an exhibit or a critic? What fun 
Ah, but that was January. By November, the year 1977 threatened to be a downer. The International Women's Congress, held in an outpost of a Bible Belt, Houston, Texas, and was picketed by earnest defenders of a woman's right not to be equal. ERA is a turkey, claimed this idiotically smiling group as I aimed my camera bayonet directly at them. The artist Aura Lerman cheered us up a year later by chairing a November session of the New York chapter of the WCA at the Metropolitan Museum, in which examples of misreadings of art were considered. But you didn't have to go to New York to fight the feminist war against male myopia in the arts. The Women's Art Collective in Atlanta had staged a heroic publicity campaign in the mid-1970s. Anyone here from Atlanta? What? <laughs> and in the mid-1980s at Boulder, Colorado, the collective there created this attention-getting, gender-reversed poster to advertise a decade of women's art. Anyone here from Colorado? <laughs> and it was in 1978 that a legion of admiring onlookers and dedicated collaborators met in the Santa Monica studio of Judy Chicago to plot out the multiple aspects of that great collective statement of women's history dinner party. How thrilled we all were when this ambitious project was realized two years later and we could visit it in its Texas installation in March of 1980 and when the April edition of Art in America featured it on its cover. Inspired by Judy's colossal achievement, Eleanor redid the cover of Time magazine to honor the artist and her vision. May I ask, has a permanent site been found yet for the dinner party? Where? Santa Fe? Hooray. All right. Does feminism conflict with artistic standards, worried Hilton Kramer ostentatiously in a New York Times article of January 1980? Well, here's one no-nonsense answer to Kramer's conundrum penned by a student evaluating my large 20th century art survey course. As an improvement, he asked that I show, quote, a little more sculpture and a lot more women artists. After all, they are just as good as the male painters, end quote. I followed his advice. <laughs> by 1980, the previously all-male boards of the CAA were a relic of the past. And the second female to serve as president of the CAA the intrepid Marilyn Stockstone of Kansas made a calculated and to some radical selection for that year's annual conference convocation address speaker. She chose a cowperson type from Texas who wore bright broad-brimmed hats and whose published scholarship revolved around those non-mainstream, non-French artists, Gustave Klimt and Egon Schiele. Alessandra Comini's speech was titled menacingly, art history, revisionism, and some holy cows. And when the first pair of slides flashed up on the screen, she did not have to say anything for a few minutes. The uproar was so loud. Her argument, sweetly presented, was simply that a lot of former holy cows in art history were now pure bull. 
to demonstrate her point that until very recently, tradition and our textbooks had told us that mothers don't matter in the birth of art history so long as a plurality of fathers can be pointed to. She traced the education of little Alatoya Homini, a simple child from middle America, during the 1950s at Barnard College and 1960s at Berkeley in Columbia, when never once during all those years did the name of a single female artist pass from the lips of any one of her instructors, female or male. Arguing that the male mode of seeing had been elevated to universal principle, she asked for a whole history of art, one that would include the accomplishments of both sexes. That doesn't seem like a very radical demand nowadays, does it? But here is Cindy Lyle's description of the conclusion of the event as published in Women Artist News. Quote, Before Comini's address, I had spired Horst Jansen himself, author of the most influential art history text in America today, The History of Art. Although Comini never mentioned him or his book by name, each time she cataloged another instance of sexism in art history, one's thoughts could not but drift to the man who stubbornly resisted mentioning the name of even one woman artist in a volume covering 3,000 works. Jansen sat through the speech, smoking continuously. They used to be able to do that in the old days. His face expressionless. At the conclusion, the crowd gave Comini a wildly enthusiastic standing ovation. He hesitated, then stood, and without registering his own reaction, exited, end quote. What I have never had a chance to tell Cindy Lyle is that the very next day, after hearing Jansen make one of his, but how could a nice girl like you remarks, I was able to hand him one of the special little business cards some of us used to hand out at CAA conferences in those early raucous days. In English and Spanish, it read, you have just insulted a woman. This card has been chemically treated and your dicky will fall off in 30 seconds. Pricked to the core, Jansen never spoke to me again. But Richard Martin, Pink Arrow, feminist editor of Arts Magazine, did speak to me. And he not only published the text of that convocation address of long ago in his periodical, he also frequently reproduced work by women artists, here Gabriele Munter's self-portrait, as covers for his different issues. Even the staid magazine Art News participated in that watershed year of 1980. Its October cover featured a group photograph of only women artists and with playful provocation asked the question, where are the great men artists? A little battle won for a month at least. Eleanor Tufts rushed for her scissors again and elatedly pasted the Art News group on the cover of Time magazine. Two years later, we had nothing to be so jubilant about. President Ronald Reagan's congratulatory open letter of 30 June 1982 to Phyllis Schlafly reminded us all that the ERA amendment had suffered defeat. Our own CAA had been for it, incidentally, issuing these museum-style lapel buttons, and we boycotted the city of 
no, woman cotted the city of Chicago for years as site for national meetings since Illinois had voted against the ERA. But 1982 also brought us the dynamic duo of Norma Browdy and Mary Gerard, <laughs> keepers of the sacred gunpowder, who now rolled out the heavy artillery with the publication of their book, Feminism and Art History, Questioning the Litany. Since this first mutinous editorial collaboration of theirs, it has become commonplace in WCAA and CAA panels to question the litany and set off canons. Remember Maya Lin, the 21-year-old Chinese-American winner of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Competition? Well, 1982 saw the November dedication of her much-disputed abstract monument with its two black granite walls bearing the names of 58,000 dead and missing Americans and cutting into the wounded earth to form an open, perpetual, triangular tomb. A diminutive female artist had won that particular artistic contest. But a large contingent of incensed males aided financially by H. Ross Perot, who flew 40 angry vets to Washington, pitched a second battle of protest, and we know the outcome. The portrait sculptor, Frederick Nicotine Hart, was commissioned to do a second memorial to be placed near the hated abstract wall, a bronze grouping of three heroic male soldiers drenched in Rockwellian realism. A second battle had been won, this time by the other side. Perhaps we should rephrase Hilton Kramer's troubled question of 1980. Does feminism conflict with artistic standards? To read, does machoism conflict with artistic standards? Despite the fact that 1983 saw the New York Times Magazine feature John Russell's assessment of the new European painters, meaning the new European male painters, the 1983 WCA Awards Banquet held in Philadelphia that year was especially gratifying and momentous. Sissy Ferenthold on the left was the rousing keynote speaker. Vienna-born Indian scholar Stella Tromrich was one of the awardees, and Ruth Weisberg on the left was well on her way to becoming the first woman artist to head the CAA as its president. Ah, and there on the right is that great party giver, June Wayne, who later gave such a riveting convocation address at the Metropolitan Museum right here in New York. How many of you were there? And here's art historian Thalia Guma Peterson at the same banquet. Did she already know she would be writing a major book on Audrey Flack? And there's the Florida artist, Kyra, born in China, educated in Argentina. Did she already have her colored pencil double portrait of comedian Tufts in mind, assigning each an icon symbolizing their research interests, Beethoven and Whitney? Who can predict what seeds are planted at these bonding WCA events? Let's jump ahead to 1986, when Women Artist News produced this memorable cover, Son of Jansen dealing with Tony Jansen's feeble attempts to add a sprinkling of women to his father's male litany. 
We had already had to contend that year with this obnoxious ad touting the second edition of Hugh Honor's and John Fleming's book, The Visual Arts a History, in which the publishers announced with self-satisfied glee that the format had been enlarged to 1,129 illustrations, of which 420 were in color, and the number of women artists illustrated increased to an awe-inspiring 21. Wow! In such skirmishes for equal representation, it's sometimes hard to cry for laughing. A major battle for public visibility of women artists was won in 1987 with the inauguration in Washington, D.C. of the National Museum of Women in the Arts, although a number of people had doubts similar to the ones expressed in this Art News article. Will Washington's new museum focus long overdue attention on women artists of the past and present, or will it segregate them in a female ghetto? Undeterred by such Kierkegaardian either-ors, Eleanor Tufts was asked to take on the job of curating the opening show, one which she decided would cover American women artists from 1830 to 1930. Eleanor was determined that sculptors would be substantially represented in spite of the financial problems of transporting large bronze and marble pieces to the five venues of the traveling exhibition, Washington, Minneapolis, Hartford, San Diego, and Dallas. With what gusto she threw herself into scouring the country for unusual, interesting, and sometimes forgotten artists. All those index cards paid off. And with what animation she lectured before the paintings and sculptures assembled for the show, seen in its Washington installation on the left and its Dallas site on the right. Wanda Korn on our extreme left and Gail Levin, sorry I don't have a photograph of you Gail, contributed pithy essays for the 256 page all color catalog and I was lured into researching the careers of two sculptors, the American-born Harriet Hosmer from Watertown and German-born Elisabeth Ney. The word sculptress was forever banned from our discussions and our texts. That's an old photo identifying her as sculptress. Naysayers and objections persisted. Do we need a museum of women's art? Asked a pessimistic art news possibly answering its own question with the two other feature articles announced on the cover, one on Pablo Picasso's sketchbooks, one on Robert Ryman's white magic. A counter exhibit to Eleanor's show was mounted in Washington, and we attended, trying to figure out the subtle symbolism of the pointy flowers in a section titled, Some Like It Hot. Arguments will continue to rage about the role of NIMWA, as some of us call the National Museum of Women in the Arts, but I, for one, like this great gadfly, housed in a former Masonic temple, irritating, I hope, the collective conscience of museum directors across the country. And I can't help wonder whether all the ruckus over where to display women artists in the early 1980s didn't play a bit of a role in the National Galleries opting to give O'Keefe a giant retrospective at the end of 1987. And I wonder 
whether in some very tangible, if small way, our collective feminist ferment didn't play some role in helping to promote Anne de Harnoncourt to the directorship of the Philadelphia Museum and in inducing the established old galleries of Boston and New York to begin concentrating on women artists, not necessarily for altruistic reasons, of course, since the prices for women artists' works have at last begun to rise. The value of women's work was one of the issues discussed at the closing conference of the UN's International Women's Decade in Washington, D.C., an event graced by Bella Absug in a broad-brimmed red hat, hmm. and Betty Friedan, and attended by a host of art historians who participated in various workshops that addressed discrimination and accountability, two of the themes of today's panel. To hasten toward those themes and other speakers, I'll focus in now on a last look at our chronology of CAA WCA gatherings and recall the special verve that seemed to animate the Houston Conference of 1988. There are Whitney Chadwick, a relative of the sculptor Anne Whitney, by the way, in the center, and on the right, Josephine Withers. Ah, Josephine, who gave us that fabulous speech on the famous fur-covered cup, spoon, and saucer, and the forgotten Merritt Oppenheim, one of the sensations of our panels. And there's Muriel Magenta, dressed in magenta, recording the passing parade of personalities like Audrey Flack. We also love to observe at these yearly reunions where so much joyous affirmation of fellow warriors is possible. Exposure. That's what these many skirmishes and battles over the past 20 years have produced. Whether it be new images of old masters like May Stevens' colossal homage to Artemisia Gentileschi at the Nimwa, or the piquant photographic blending of living artists with their works, as in this cover on our left for Exposures, Women and Their Art, published by California's enterprising New Sage Press in 1989, with an energetic Ruth Weisberg streaking past one of her own canvases. As I look back at the CAA's well-intended commitment, CAA for ERA of 1980, and at the composition of our CAA boards in this decade of the 1990s, I can't help but think, yes, battles have been lost, but the war is being won. We have recently had equal representation at the top of our national organization, with a woman president coming up every other term, it seems, art historian Phyllis Bober and artist Ruth Weisberg, for example. Stop. Hold. Is the picture so rosy and cozy in the outside world, the real world? Let's return to Maya Lin's Vietnam War Memorial, as I did last week, for a final glance and observe the latest skirmish in the seemingly unending battle for equal representation. The end of 1993 saw the dedication of yet another realistic, figurated bronze memorial in the wall's vicinity, this time honoring the women veterans of Vietnam. In this newspaper photograph, two Vietnam vets unconsciously gravitate towards their ethnic counterparts in the memorial. Does the racial balancing act work? And does the aesthetic caliber of the bronze ensemble allow us to greet this new entry into the art world with victorious pleasure? 
At first glance, all things seem equal on the playing field of Rockwellian antidotes to Chinese-American abstraction. A male sculptor on our left has created and signed, letters all in caps, the 1984 tribute, and a female sculptor has created and signed mixture of initial capital letters and lowercase, the 1993 memorial. We note in passing, but shall refrain from commenting, that these so-called public memorials, testimonials to national courage, have each been copyrighted by the two artists concerned, Frederick Hart and, straight out of MASH perhaps, Glenna Goodacre. I'm not making this up, as Anna Russell used to say. When we back off for a full view of each monument, something about the design axes impels a photographer, me, to snap the male memorial in vertical format and the female memorial in horizontal format. Hmm, that's plus one for sculptural manipulation and minus one for alert feminism. But the compositional verticality of the combat group and the horizontality of the Pietà-like nurses group are inescapable. What is each group doing, actually? The three male troopers, led by a veiny Caucasian, are warily striding forward, cautiously but coolly assessing what dangers might lie about them. The women nurses, are there only two? react differently to the sprawled figure of a wounded male soldier. The Caucasian nurse, not a hair out of place in her carefully done-up bun, solicitously cradles the man in her lap. But the African-American nurse turns her back on the sight, her outspread fingers tensed, and her head turned to the heavens. Is she, we have to hope, scanning the skies for helicopter relief? we are simultaneously forced to fear. Is she losing it? Falling apart under pressure? What a disrespectful thought. And yet, when we consider the well-armed male triad with reading from right to left, bayoneted rifle, holstered revolver, magazine belts, machine gun, and multiple water canteens, versus the completely unequipped nurses who, except for a compress on the eyes of the victims, inexplicably lack bandages, thermometers, medication, canteens, or even a stethoscope. The subversive reading persists. The insinuation of incompetence, whether conscious or unconscious, on the part of the artist, and I do hope Glenna Goodacre is not a card-carrying member of the WCA. If you're here, I'm sorry, Glenna Goodacre. But this insinuation of incompetence is further compounded when we walk around to the back of the monument and discover a third nurse quite hidden from view when the monument is first approached, crouching among the sandbags and cradling a medical kit? No, an abandoned metal helmet, empty. She herself wears a soft canvas cap. <laughs> Moving reminder of a fallen male warrior. Oh, yes, well, despite the I hope 
noble motives of the sculptor, sculptress, who has copyrighted this homage to American nurses. I think it can only serve her right if she discovers that her monument attracts skeptics who try to correct her perceived wrongs. As President Clinton would say, we can do better. History and Kate Corvitz have taught us that we can do better with realistic monuments dedicated to condemning or marking war. So what can we do in this most Philistine of all real worlds? In our teaching and lecturing, we art historians can continue to write the historical balance while demanding quality in artists, female or male. In our classes, we can fashion enthusiastic feminists of both sexes who graduate with practical skills, high purpose, and idealistic fervor. We veterans from 1974 are getting a bit more sedate now, perhaps. No broad-brimmed hats. But we are not tired, are we, Linda? And we shall continue to harp away at you, to encourage and provoke you to participate in the wonderful war of creation and achievement that is open to all of us who strive. We all stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. So when you battle for acknowledgement, when you taste the pleasures of recognition, remember that Anne Harris and Lyndon Auckland began to win the war a full generation 